This morning we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. Um, so, Nehemiah is one of those books that you read it the first time and you think, oh, I get exactly what this is about. And then you read it a second time and you say, oh, well, there, there's more to this. And then you read it a third time and you're saying, uh, uh, wait a minute, what? <laughs> and you read it six, seven, eight times and pretty soon you begin to realize, oh, I didn't even scratch the surface. Um, this is a book that's often used uh, just as a book about leadership. And while, yes, it deals a lot with leadership, I think it goes much deeper than just a book for leaders. I think this is a book that all of us can grab a hold of and say, hey, I've been there. In fact, the, the book begins really with this devastating situation. Stand with me as we read Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read just the first four verses to start with, but we're going to be talking through the whole first chapter. Nehemiah 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word, though it's 2,400, 2,450 or so years old. And if you let it, it'll still change your life anyway. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Pray with me. Father, we this morning have our share of rubble. We have our share of broken walls and burnt gates. Help us to see that even in the devastation and ruin, your mighty hand is still working. Help us see you through this text and follow you through our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. 596 is the year. Jerusalem has been overrun by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The exile has begun. And if you listen to the prophets for the last 300 years up before this, you would know exactly why the Israelites are going into exile. They have forgotten God. They have turned away from God and faithlessly devoted themselves to all kinds of different absurdities for gods. Gods that cannot speak. Gods that cannot move. Gods that cannot eat or talk. They have worshipped the gods that they have made with their own hands. And prophet after prophet has called them to repent of their sins and to turn back to the true God. The God who loves them. The God who ransomed them from Egypt, from slavery under Pharaoh, and who brought them to a land flowing with milk and honey. But they have refused him, and now they are going into exile. Even into exile, we hear the words of prophets like Jeremiah saying, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Even into exile, we hear the promises of Ezekiel saying that one day that God would restore, that he would return to his temple and that waters, living waters would flow from that temple out into the countryside, even down making the Dead Sea live again. It's even in those times of exile that we hear God's promises come through. But the exile is still happening. Israelites are moved from Jerusalem and from Judea 
into Babylon, and eventually into to various parts of the world. Some of them were still around Babylon, i.e. Daniel, when Cyrus takes over Babylon. The year is now 539, 538, something like that. Cyrus is now king of Persia, and he's king over Babylon. The handwriting on the wall has declared to the Babylonian king that your days have been numbered and they're up. And now Cyrus rules over the largest empire known to the world of that time. He had this little contingency out in Greece that he couldn't handle, and and eventually they're going to be the downfall of Persia. But for right now, all of the power and control resides with Persia. Cyrus and then Darius the Mede. You can read about it in the book of Daniel. You can also read about Jews beginning to return back in those early days. In Haggai and Zechariah, you can see messages to Zerubbabel, the, the, the leader over that first group of Jews. You can hear the prophets encouraging them, hey, you have your paneled houses now, you've got a place to live, but the temple still lies in ruins, rebuild. So by 5.15, the temple is finished. And you think things are going great, except they're not, because they're still under oppression. Now, Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, these kings weren't really terrible on Israel. It was the local overlords. It was the more powerful rulers in that region. It was the enemies of the Israelites who were constantly opposing them, constantly oppressing them. The rich nobles were lending at exorbitant interest rates. People were devastated. Xerxes is king in in the years uh, that followed, and he is, you can read about him in the story of Esther. He's the king in Esther. It's, It's kind of funny. Cyrus, Darius, there's a guy named Daniel. It's close at hand. Xerxes, there's a woman named Esther. And now with his son, Artaxerxes I, we have another Jew that's in a prominent place in the king's court. It's funny, God always seems to have somebody in the right place at the right time, doesn't he? And this guy is named Nehemiah. We find out at the end of this chapter that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. That's a very trusted position. And we'll talk a little bit about about that next week. But basically, if you can't trust your cupbearer, you got to get a new cupbearer because he's the one that makes sure you don't get poisoned. Okay? Like, this is an important guy. He's tasting all the food and all the drink to make sure that it's safe for the king. So you've got Nehemiah, this cupbearer, in the king's court, serving the king on a regular basis. And it's in the process of him administering his duties, him being uh, in the king's court, that a couple, a group of Jews come to him. One named Hanani. We don't know if it's a literal brother or if he's speaking generally of Jews as a whole when he says, one of my brothers. But Hanani comes to him and he says, how does it fare? Verse 2. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. Let me know, how are the ones faring that left with Ezra 13 years ago? Ezra, the scribe, has taken a group, the second wave of Jews. You're talking about second wave. Here's a second wave. A second wave of Jews leaving the Persian Empire, going back home to Jerusalem. And under Ezra, they began some spiritual reform, but it's not getting anywhere. Listen to verse 3. 
And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. It's an interesting combination here. Trouble, they're in danger. And shame, Jerusalem is in ruins. Yeah, they rebuilt the temple, but man, any day now, someone could come destroy that thing. It's got no protection. If you know uh, anything about Jerusalem and you know anything about the temple, the temple is up on a mount. It, it is built up on a huge platform made of these stones because at the bottom of it, uh, Jerusalem sits on a hill. So at the bottom of it, you had to build up in order. It's either build up or it's dig down into the rocks. They weren't going to dig down for the temple. That needed to be up high. So they built up a platform for the temple to sit on. The problem is on the north side, you can walk straight in. There's no hill to climb. You're coming from the north. It's, it's easy pickings. So the north, the part, northern part of the temple had to be well fortified to protect it. But it wasn't. The wall was in ruins. So any day now, any of these enemies of Israel can come right in and destroy the temple. It wasn't just the matter of destroying the temple, though. There's no wall. There's no safety. But there's no wall. There's also shame. What kind of a city do you live in that doesn't even have a wall? It's funny how the conversation has changed. Now there are some people that think we should just tear down every wall. Back then, walls were the way that you survived. How can you protect yourself without a wall? How can you secure your family without a wall? How can you rebuild a city without a wall? Any work could just be undone. And that's not even to mention the state of the people. The people are broken. They are disheartened. They are scared, helpless. They are oppressed broke, tired, just thinking about these conditions would make you want to cry. If Nehemiah was looking for good news, boy, he sure got the wind knocked out of him with this. Nehemiah is feeling the burden. I want to I propose a general principle for life. Now, I know I'm under 40, okay? I haven't lived as much life as many of you, okay? I understand this. But I think I'm on the right track with this. So, so bear with me for just a second. I believe that before God can do anything with his people, anything really worthwhile, anything that will stand the test of time, he has to burden us first. I believe the first step to God's work is always a burden. Now, sometimes it might make you cry. Sometimes it might make you mad. Sometimes it might make you say, what in the world is going on? Sometimes it might spur within you a need to react. But it always starts with a burden. Nehemiah is feeling the burden. It's funny though, he's not there. He's in Susa. Susa's several hundred miles away. It'd take him quite a while to get there to Jerusalem, but he's still feeling the burden anyway. The emotional burden, the physical burden, the spiritual burden, they're all sitting heavy on Nehemiah's heart. So what does he do? He immediately gets to work. He immediately walks straight into the king and says, King, we got to rebuild this wall and I'm your man. Right? No. Oh, sorry. This is church. He goes and prays to God first. No. See, even before he bows his head in prayer, he bows his head in shame and in mourning. Look at the beginning of verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. You know, that's about the only thing you can do in this situation. When you feel the weight of the burden, 
of this need, this great need, whether it's you or whether it's someone you know or whether it's no one that you know in particular. When you feel the burden of a need, there's almost nothing you can do but mourn for days or weeks or months. We find out in chapter 2, it's four months before Nehemiah does anything else and mourn and pray. Four months. This burden needs to get good, good and rock before he can act on it. I can almost hear um, Nehemiah praying on some days. All he can do is just ask God for help. On other days, he's just so overwhelmed. We'll see what he prays in just a minute. Uh, uh, he gives kind of a summary of that four months of prayer. But I can see on some days, he, is, he, is, he has his head to the ground just begging God for mercy. And other days, he is asking God, what do you want me to do about this? What is my role in this? And I can see other days where he's saying, are you sure? <laughs> are you really sure this is what you want? He's struggling with this. He's feeling the burden. Can I tell you something? If you're feeling the burden, if there's some, some need that you sense and you are feeling the burden, it is okay to feel that burden. God is working through that. Maybe it's the, I don't know exactly what it might be, but don't rush past this. It could be a pink slip or an impending retirement. It could be that you've lost someone that you love. It could be that you're struggling to get over a problem that you've faced for years and years and years, and it just doesn't go away. We've all had our share of brokenness and rubble, haven't we? Haven't we? And I'm, I'm not even 40, and I've had my share. In those times of deep feeling, those moments of burden, those months, I should say, of burden, it's okay to be overwhelmed. If that's you this morning, um, it's okay to be overwhelmed. But through the morning, we must also seek God. You see, some, some look at tragedy as a reason to hate God. Nehemiah realizes that this is a reason to draw closer to God. See, God uses the tragedies, deaths, and, and the, the terrible circumstances that we find ourselves in. He uses all that as part of his perfect plan. This is what he means uh, when Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good for those who love God. Now, what he's not saying is that only good stuff happens to those who love God. He doesn't say that. He says all things, good things and bad things, sinful things and righteous things, things that are comfortable and things that are not comfortable. All things work together for good. You see, God can redeem our circumstances, our faults, our rubble, our errors, and use them for his good and perfect will. He's not limited by only what we think he can do. And Nehemiah was soon to discover that good purpose. But for now, he has to bear the burden. But he doesn't bear it alone. He bears it directly to the throne of God. And he does it through a prayer. Now, I don't think this is one prayer. I think this is four months of prayer distilled down into one, okay? So don't take this and say this is the only thing he was praying. This, this wasn't. Like I said, there are times when he is broken over sin. There are times when he is just worshiping who God is. There are times when he's asking, how in the world is this God going to fulfill his promises? But in all these things, all of this coalescing together is him bearing the burden before God and as Psalm 55, 22 says, 
cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Hey, that sounds pretty good. Someone should put that on a sign. Look at his prayer. Oh, by the way, there's certain things that he does in this prayer that, that we need to do when we feel that burden. I almost, I almost forget the whole, like, the whole structure of the sermon sometimes. I just get so excited about what God's word says. I forget exactly what I, how I want to say it. So the first thing he does is remember God's character. Verse five, and I said, O Lord God of heaven. Now there's two names for God here. There's, there's God, God's personal name, Yahweh. Then there's also the official name that the Persians would know him by, God of heaven. Okay? There's all kinds of different gods. There's God of the sea. There's God of the land. There's God of certain animals. There's God of trees. There's God of fertility. There's gods of this and gods of that. There's gods of gods and all kinds of gods. There's gods of, of, of songs and dance and music. There's gods of all kinds of things in this culture. This one is the God of heaven. By the way, this is the only real one. All the rest are phonies. All the rest are knockoffs. This is the true one. He says, O Lord God of heaven, Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. When you see that word steadfast love, in, in this version, steadfast love, it might say covenant love in yours or, or something kind of similar to that. The word is said. I know, yeah, excuse me. That's the word chesed. It, it means a love that has such devotion behind it that it's unthinkable that God would break that love. That's why it's often rendered as covenant love. And, and you see these two go together. This law, this covenant of God, and, and, and this love. They go hand in hand. It's like, it's like the letter and the spirit of the law. You can follow the letter and not follow the spirit of the law. You can follow the spirit of the law and not actually follow the letter of it. You can have the same intentions and yet do wrong. You can do right, but do it for the wrong motivations. No, we need both. And, and, and hint, coming attractions, you'll see that in the life of Nehemiah. You'll find both of these. God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Hey, hey God, listen to my prayer. God, you are the God, you are the true God. You're the one who keeps covenant. You're the one who keeps covenant love. Hear my prayer. He's reminding himself, confessing who God is. Don't we need reminders of who God is sometimes? Especially when we're feeling the burdens. Especially when we hear of the rubble, of the devastation and the ruin. And the burden is pricking at our hearts, is weighing down on our hearts, is crushing our hearts. We more than ever need to consider who God is. We need to remember God's character because God has not changed though the circumstances have changed. God has not changed though your situation is ever changing. God has not changed though you have abandoned him and you have forsaken him. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God doesn't change. It's us who change. And it's us who need the reminder of who God is. We need to remember God's character. That's the first step of bearing this burden. And it's really the first step, really, really of prayer in general. We need to remember who it is we're praying to. When your life is nothing but smoldering ash and heaps of rubble, remember who God is. If we are to bear the burdens we face 
and to bear them in a godly way, we must look beyond the rubble and see the character of God. We, we may not know what he's up to, but we've got to remember he's up to something, and it's good, no matter how bad it feels right now. Any of you ever have medicine that you take and then you got to drink something right after it because the taste is so bad? Cough medicine, yeah. James uh, Mitchell sometimes take medicine that just tastes nasty. And you see that? (laughs) We had a cough medicine that Brantley took one time. It was one that was made for kids, so it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't the good stuff. It was just the, you know. But even that kind of tastes nasty. And so I watched Brantley take it, and he's like, like it took a couple seconds for it to hit him. And when it hit him, yeah, I knew it hit him. So I was like, here, have, have this drink. It'll be fine. Sometimes what's good tastes bad. Sometimes it feels bad, but it's still good. The sooner we acknowledge God's presence in the midst of our devastation, in the midst of our burdens, the better for us it'll be. But Nehemiah doesn't stop there. I could just think about who God is. That's not really fully bearing the burden, though. There's another step, and that is to recognize our sins. Look at the end of verse 6. He's saying that this is his prayer. He's praying this prayer. Hear my prayer. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Did, did you notice the, the way that he makes this confession? He doesn't, he doesn't use any third-person pronouns in this. He doesn't say they did wrong. He mentions the people of Israel, but what does he say right after that? Which we have sinned. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly, very corruptly. That very is, is, is the word for strength. Like we've been, we've, been, we've been strong in our corruption against you. We have flexed our entire muscular capacity to act against you, God. We, I, not just they, them. Nehemiah doesn't try to escape the pointed finger. He, he starts pointing at himself. We learn from chapter 2 that it's four months later, four months, that he's praying this. And I can just imagine some of the days, some of the weeks of this is nothing but confessing sin. Confessing every sin. Putting it all out on the table. Not hiding behind words of general affirmation of God and platitudes of please forgive us, God, but naming names. Getting down to the heart of the matter. As one author would put it, riding the beast all the way down to the depths of his heart. Scraping sins off the bottom of the pot to get it all out of there. I don't think this is just a God forgive us and then we quickly move on. I think we really need to take a good, long, hard look at who we are. Because when we look at the character of God and when we consider him, we're going to come face to face with who we are too. And it ain't a pretty picture. I never knew what ice cream was. I was I was a young lad and I was sheltered from the glory of ice cream. I never knew what it was. My parents would offer me ice cream ice cream. I never knew it was yogurt until my grandparents said, you want some ice cream? And I said, yes. Who kid? What kid would say no to that? Unless, unless you're allergic. 
What kid would say no to ice cream? And they gave me ice cream. Not yogurt, not the fake stuff, not the counterfeit phony baloney. They gave me the real thing. And yogurt hasn't tasted the same ever since. When we come face to face with the God of heaven, we get the real ice cream. And then we look at ourselves and all we see is yogurt. And some of you like yogurt, that's okay. I'm not downplaying it, but it ain't ice cream. When we look at God's beauty, when we, when we see him for the holy, pure, righteous, loving, true God that he is, we can't help but look at ourselves and see how much we fall short. We need that. Not only do we need to bear, to bear the burden of the need over there, we need to bear the burden of the need in here. God's going to do anything with us. We've got to come face to face with who we are and confess our sins before him. We've got to learn firsthand the truth of Psalm 51. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. When we are faced with utter destruction, we remember God's character, and that leads us to recognize our own sins. Now we're on the right path. Now we're doing what we need to do. Because now we are becoming the people that God can use. See, before, we weren't in the place where God can use us, but the purpose of the burden is to bring us to the place where God can use us to put us in the right location. Oh, he was in the right place, physically speaking. He was in the court of the king. But Nehemiah wasn't quite, quite ready for God to use him. And, and it really leads us to the next step of our burden bearing. The step where we, records, or where, where, where we recite God's promises. You see, this is the step where the burden shifts from our shoulders onto his shoulders. Now, we're still bearing it. He's just joining us in the yoke. And he's a lot stronger than we are. So in reality, the burden's just kind of sitting on us, but it's resting on him. And it happens through his promises. It happens not just because God has made the promise, but because we recite the promise. There's something about saying it, especially out loud, right? That's why we do come to the altar to make your, your profession of faith public. Because it's one thing to say, I'm going to follow you, God. It's a whole other thing to get up in front of a, a group of people and say, all right, I'm following God. Boy, that adds a whole other dynamic, doesn't it? We recite God's promises. We say them. We say them to ourselves. We say them out loud. Because in that process, that's how God is driving his word deep into our hearts that we may know him better, more fully, and trust him completely. It happens in verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Now, why in the world would he remind God of that? Wait a minute. Isn't that bad? Yeah. But I don't know if you can see it. If you got good eyes, you can see it. If you don't have good eyes, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point this out for you. Okay. Right at the end of peoples, there's a comma. It's not just if you do me wrong, I'm going to do you wrong. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No, watch what happens. Verse 9. But if you return to me. These are, these are ifs that aren't like conditionals. These are, these are more ifs that's like, I know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. <laughs> okay? When you return to me. Not if, but when. And keep my commandments and do them. Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. The language is the farthest horizons. I don't care how far away they are. From there, I will gather them 
and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. He's already begun fulfilling this. We've had two waves of Jews already go back. Nehemiah is about to lead a third wave. He's already begun fulfilling this promise. And so he says, hey, hey God, don't give up now. Keep going. He recognized his sins and the sins of all Israel, but he also recognized God had already planned for this. God had already designed his plan for exactly what he's going to do. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Paul talks about Christ being slain before the foundations of the world. Don't think this caught God by surprise. I mean, he had, he had told Moses had warned Israel, this is what's going to happen. You read the book of Deuteronomy. He says it several times. Look, you're going to get into this land and you're going to get fat and happy and you're going to forget God. That's, that's my paraphrase, okay? But over and over and over again, God recognizes this is what's going to happen, but I'm already making provisions for it. I've already planned for your screw-ups. Isn't that good that God doesn't get messed up when we mess up? God, God just says, oh, yep, all part of the plan. Three, two, one. Yep, there it is. Right on schedule. He knew Israel would bear his wrath in exile, but he also set the means by which Israel would be reconciled again and restored to her promised land. That promise is now the focus of Nehemiah's prayers. Are, are you standing in the shameful remains of your life? Are you looking for someone to bear the burden with you? God's made some promises. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. For I, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Those last two, those last two, those are made to Israelites going into exile. Now Nehemiah is claiming those promises. He says, I'm doing my part, God. Now it's your turn. Now it's up to you. He even connects the dots to these particular people in verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. This is the same language used of Israel when they come out of Egypt. Your Bible might say a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It's the same God. He's made those promises and those promises are just as valid today. You know how I know that? He's got a pretty good track record. He redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Now Nehemiah is saying, redeem us from slavery in Persia. Redeem them in slavery to their enemies. The same God who redeems his people before is the same God who's redeeming people today. Redeeming us from sin, from death, from eternal punishment. Have you been redeemed? You can be. God hasn't stopped redeeming. Okay, Jim got it. Did y'all get it? God has not stopped redeeming. I hope he doesn't stop. Because I'm a far cry from where I need to be. I need him to keep redeeming. I need him to keep sanctifying. I need him to keep working in me. Amen? Yeah, you need it too. It's okay. You can admit it. It's fine. This is a safe place. We're all sinners here. We all need his grace. And even today, he offers it. He made some other promises. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall 
be saved. Those are God's promises. Recite them. When we face the destruction that has wrecked our lives, we can recite these promises of God with absolute certainty that he will fulfill them. We remember God's character. We recognize God's sins. We, we recite God's promises. But in the end, we request God's help because this is just too much for us to handle on our own. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Don't just listen to my prayer. Listen to all the prayers. Because there's a lot of people, God, that want to follow you. There's a lot of people who need your help. There's a lot of people who are ready to, to devote themselves to the work that you've called them to do. Hear our prayers and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. You know what he's really saying? I think this happens. I think this part happens right just before uh, what happens in chapter 2 transpires. I think Nehemiah has finally gotten to the point where he knows what God wants him to do. He's convinced of it. You'll see in chapter 2 a man with a plan. Nehemiah doesn't come wishy-washy before the king saying, I sure wish somebody would do something about it. He says, let me go do this and let this happen. And if it's pleasing to you, can you grant me these things? I need, I need timber from this forest. I need letters to, to go about doing the work that you've called me to do so that people know that this is by your will. He comes in with a plan, a plan forged in four months of prayer before God, fasting, seeking God's will. And so he gets to the end of that four months and he's about ready to go before the king. And now he says, God, you're going to have to do this. It's, it's all up to you. Cupbearers don't typically have much experience in masonry or general contracting. They don't typically have great leadership skills, at least not, not, not that have been exercised in your vocation. It's pretty much just try the food, don't die, give it to the king. Try the food, die, well, oh well, get a new cupbearer, I guess. If Nehemiah's going to be successful, he needs help, and so do we. You can try to clean up the rubble yourself, but man, it's a big mess. You might get some of it up. You might get some of it looking pretty good, but it's too much. Even if you get a little section, it's, it's like trying to clean a house with toddlers. You get one room clean, four more are messy. You just can't catch up, can you? If you really want to clean up your life, if you really want to experience the way that God intended your life to be, you need God's help. So what, what rubble are you standing over? What burden are you bearing? Remember his character. He's so good that we define good based on him. Remember his character. Recognize sin. Not just their sins, someone else's, your sins. For me, my sins. Put it first person. Recite God's promises over and over and over again. And request God's help. Depend on him to make it happen. Now, that doesn't mean you don't do anything, but it does mean you need his help and you know it every step of the way. Ask God to empower you to do his work for his glory. We're going to pray invitation and then we're going to prepare to take communion. Not a typical communion message, I know. But you know, part of the reason God put us here in a church is because we need to bear the burdens together. So maybe this morning um, God's doing something in your life. I'm going to be down here front. Come talk to me if you need someone. I'm here to help you any way I can. Let's pray and then we'll sing a verse of invitation. Father, you do your work in us put the burden on our hearts of what you want us to do and then help us, as, as Nehemiah modeled, to recognize your character, to, to remember your character, to recognize our sins, to recite 
your promises and then to request your help. Father, lead us in the way that we need to go to do what you have called us to do and start by changing us. This is your time. You do as you will. In Christ's name, amen.